Hello, and welcome to another episode of Listen with Cheryl McKay. I love talking to people who are passionate about their work or their hobbies, and I'm always curious about how they discovered this passion. Well, for some people, you know, it's clear practically from birth. You know, Think of the artist who's been drawing things for as long as they can remember and always knew they wanted to be an artist. But other folks take more of an unusual path, I guess we'll say. It could be down to random chance. It could be maybe a lucky accident, a lucky choice. And that latter scenario is the case of my guest today. Sally Thorne is Associate Dean in the Faculty of Applied Science at the University of British Columbia, and for many years before that, she was Director of the School of Nursing. Sally Thorne has researched and published work in the fields of communication and healthcare, especially around cancer treatment, and in the role of nursing in medical assistance and dying. She well, Sally, thank you. Thank you for having me in for a chat. It's lovely to meet you. Oh, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm curious. I know that retirement is, or a kind of retirement, is looming for you. But I'm just curious about some of the things, some of the big questions that you are delving into right now, and will continue to do so after after this particular phase is finished. What what is most interesting to you right now? Well, right now, it's a kind of an awkward time to retire, and there never would have been a good time to retire because it's like an ongoing story. And the huge privilege of being a member of the academic community is that you don't have to stop doing the work. Um, I've been studying uh, medical assistance in dying, and particularly from from the lens of nursing, what we see in the changes in the legislation and the changes in people's consciousness about how to ask and how to have conversations and how to how to uh, create the conditions under which families can reconnect and have the conversations they need to have, um, how to work through all those ethical complexities of families that don't necessarily get along and what an individual's rights are in those final days, including, sorry, family, I need to do this on my own. So there's, there's just so many issues that are going to continue to be of interest. So I can't stop the research. I'll stop taking a salary and stop doing a lot of the committee work and a lot of the administrative work that I do. But um, that's that I think will be a conversation we need to continue to have for many, many years in Canada as we get used to this question and as we reflect on all the ethical questions. Mm. Like how we have in British Columbia more made deaths than other provinces. Quebec may be catching up. We'll find out in the report this summer. But um, how will we know if we have too many? Hmm. And how will we know if that signifies that we don't have enough service for mental health, for disability, for palliative care? Because obviously MAID can't be thought of as the only option for people who don't have proper services. So there's so many interesting questions, and they're all philosophical, and they're all ethical, and they all hit everyday human beings where they work. And for nursing, it can hit in any site, in any setting. These aren't people who train to be palliative care nurses and know, know about themselves that they were heading into working with dying. They're people for whom, in the middle of the night when you're giving a bedpan, somebody says, how much longer does this have to go on? Mm. And you are called to decide whether to allow that conversation to continue or whether to say something that might just shut it down. So there's all these equity issues because the assertive, educated, privileged people know how to ask. Right. And there are many people who do not know how to ask. 
So that's the kind of things that nurses are dealing with. And it's so interesting and it's so important. So we can't stop. <laughs> and what are some of the, the biggest changes that you've seen over the last couple of years in the, I guess, in the ethical concerns or the ethical discussions around this? Well, when we started, it was all about whether people were conscientious objectors or not. Mm. And, and the idea at that time was really that you would sort of search your soul and decide that you were for it or against it, as if that was a fixed category. Mm. It turns out that that's not the case for most people. And that, that for people who thought they might be against it, they've often felt that way until a patient has said, but will you be with me? Mm. You know me best. Will you help me on the day? Will you make sure my sister is not overly emotional? Like when you're brought in to be there and to accompany and to be with a patient for, with whom you have a relationship, um, it becomes a very different kind of question. The morality isn't what I believe theoretically. It's about am I willing to be present? Right, the connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I've, I've heard, I've heard uh, spiritual care providers, for example, say that, that killing is wrong. I know this. I'm never going to change in that. But these are the most beautiful experiences I've been involved with. Mm. Like, it's, it's not about me and about that. Similarly, people who are pro it sometimes start to realize that there can be an emotional residue mm -hmm. from being with too many people in an assisted death, they may need to take space from a time. Not to, not to change their, their moral value around it, but, but recognizing that it's not quite like every other practice. Every life and death is different, and that there's a role for those that are around them, whether they're family members or nurses or others that are accompanying. There's, there's, there's a very important role in creating the best possible experience in those days leading up to a death. And that's not often the providers and assessors. They may come in for a shorter period of time and then go again. So there's that sort of who's in the support world. Right. If you're a home care nurse or a hospital nurse or a long-term care nurse, who's there in that world that's in the position to be able to help people navigate that really difficult terrain? And just as you're saying that too, Sally, it occurs to me that trying to, the whole nuanced thing about what's, bringing me, you know, to this decision to end my life? And am I feeling some kind of pressure that nobody else can notice or be aware of, in, just inside myself? Yes, and so many of the legal safeguards are set up to prevent things like people um, feeling that there might be a burden on their family. Mm -hmm. That We would consider that would be a, a negative thing. And the interesting, the paradox is that Patients who are moving in that direction have that awareness that that's not a thing that they are allowed to say. In fact, that they, they, they might be prevented <laughs> from having made, but that may be still one of the genuine feelings that they have. Yes. And for so many, it's, it's a sense of autonomy and wanting to, to die as you lived, carving your own path, doing it your own way, with dignity, with control... And for many of them, that's the issue. So you're kind of navigating what is it that are the legal boundaries? What do I say and not say? I, I know that suffering's in, included in the eligibility criteria. So on the one hand, I have to show suffering. So do I stop taking my pain medication? Or do I, do I live as I am and invite somebody in the front door and offer them tea and you know behave normally? Or do I put on a suffering face huh. so that I'll be more eligible? 
And when, how do I time this? Right. How do I judge the issue of cognitive capacity to consent at the end? And these are all moving. They've been moving throughout the whole time. You know, the, the reasonably foreseeable death was the criterion at the beginning. And yet a number of clinicians in those early years certainly um, interpreted that loosely. You know, we are all, all going to die. And if you've had a chronic progressive neuromuscular condition, for example, your agony might be that I, I might live five more years with losses every week and I've had enough. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your worry may be that I, I might live too long. That's why you want to end it now. And paradoxically, we did change the legislation to, to, to allow more of that option, uh, but created more safeguards. Many more, you know, you have to have, have uh, been offered all reasonable efforts to reduce your, your suffering. Um, you have a longer waiting period. A whole bunch of safeguards are put in place. And people are navigating them and families are navigating them. What should I say and not say? To who? And, of course, we're now moving into the, the, the specter a year from now of the mental disorder as sole underlying condition. And what they know about so many of, the, of those that have had chronic and life-limiting conditions, the thing that often moves them to feeling it's time to end their life is not pain or nausea or physical symptoms, but it's anxiety and depression and, and exhaustion. Uh, so you can't, that, that separation between the mental and the physical in a whole person doesn't quite make sense. So the, it's, it's quite fascinating, and many, many people out there who are possibly considering it have been having advanced conversations in their families mm -hmm. with, their, with their spouses and partners, trying to work out as early as they can any differences of opinion. Lots of families are trying to wrestle with, you know, one daughter is opposed and others are supportive, and who do you invite in, and is there any way people can prevent, and those are very, very tricky and complex Issues. And then, like you say, the healthcare providers can end up being kind of in a very sticky position between the, the, yeah. the two sides or three sides or however many sides. Yeah, and, you know, complicated family dynamics. Many families have complicated dynamics. And, of course, when there's a dying person, they tend to come to the surface and, mm -hmm. and the tensions arise. Um, so that's always been a, a part of palliative care and end-of-life care. But I think in the, in the context of made, when somebody is making that decision, um, those those issues of how much we want them to make that decision and how much pressure we want to put on them to make some other decision and stay longer. And so the, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult one. Mm -hmm. And while palliative care nurses will be used to and comfortable with the idea that they have to deal with family dynamics, if you're a nurse in a long-term care facility, that might not be, or some other facility in which that's not your primary point of care, this might be a real challenge. So we're trying to create guides and reflective guides and information for nurses to help them think through delicate nuances of what you can say and mm -hmm. what you can't say. Because of course you can't, co you can't in any way be encouraging somebody or coercing them into this choice. Um, but at the same time, if you, if you take the, the strict view and don't mention it as an option for end of life until the patient raises those exact words, then um, you're, you're very aware that you've got an equity problem. Huh. Some people have access and some don't right. to the resources that Charter of Rights and Freedoms says we have access, we should have access to. Well, and, and especially now in terms of access, just the shortage of uh, 
doctors as far yes. as, you know, there's so yes. many people who don't even have a primary care physician and, and yes. access, nurses are under increasing time pressure for one thing. I mean, those conversations become harder then. They do, they do. But, you know, I think that for many nurses, nurses who have been in it a long time, uh, long before MAID was legal, will recognize that, that um, they are often the recipients of these conversations. Mm. When somebody's in pain in the night, when somebody is alone, um, they're the little moments of care when you're taking a blood pressure or something else that the question gets raised. You, you, somebody seems to be wanting something, that you just sense that we need to spend a little time here. Mm. And many, many nurses know that and historically have never been able to, to offer anything. For nurses who have worked night shifts over a lot of years, everybody recalls vividly those conversations historically when you, you know somebody is asking about, can any, can, is there anything you can do to hasten this? I know I'm going to die. I'm, I'm in distress. My family's exhausted. Is there anything we can do? I'm, and you have not had anything. There's been nothing legal, nothing appropriate, nothing professional. And so that shifted this. And so, you know, in many ways, nurses are kind of enthusiastic about the idea that there is something to offer. So trying to learn how to raise that in a way that's not coercive and can't be seen to be coercive, but um, invites people to have conversations about about the seriousness of their condition or what they think, what they would like to think about with regard to their goals of care. These are the delicate ways to get into it or, you know, have they anticipated how their life might end? Those kind of questions. Did you work as a nurse? Did you yeah. confront those, those nighttime, those late night conversations yourself by times? Oh, yes. And I think, I think for many of us, they're quite memorable because th- there's a significant moral distress when, when you, when you recognize that there's suffering that you can't relieve. And everybody in healthcare would be sort of hardwired to try and reduce suffering. That's, that's what you do. And so to, to feel impotent, to feel that it's perhaps not right in the world, that there isn't anything that could be offered, to worry about yourself or your loved ones in that situation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're seeing. When you're seeing yeah. what can happen to people and how suffering can manifest and how it can go on over time and how people can can be living lives when they, they've reconciled themselves with their God or their beliefs. They know they've finished their what they would consider their meaningful life. Uh, they know death is the only option, but... There's that vast unknown about whether it might be soon or it might be later. Uh, you know, I think, frankly, we've had some problems with palliative care in Canada because it's been more easily accessible for people with some diseases than others. Mm-hmm. There's no question that cancer and things like that uh, go more easily. My own parents, actually, one had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and one had uh, cardiac insufficiently, heart disease. And those diseases don't do well. Neither one of them was able to access palliative care, even though I'm a fairly assertive, capable person to navigate systems. Yeah, especially that system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, and a, a physician on the day before my mother died told her that she wasn't eligible for palliative care um, because, you know, the, her, her, her trajectory was too uncertain. Oh, my goodness. She might live a long time. She might die soon. She might live a long time. Um, and then, curiously and quite inappropriately said, you know, would you like to have a conversation about medical assistance and dying? 
Since we're not going to let you have hospice well, or palliative. That, you know, I think, I think that's just an artifact of the confusion and frustration that mm. clinicians were feeling at that time. Uh, my mother, of course, you know, being somebody who had thought about things like that, had said, well, thank you very much, dear, but uh, I think I'm the kind of person that probably, you know, I don't think I need that conversation, but thank you so much for raising it. Somebody else might have been quite offended yes. because, you know, it's, it's, that's, those two ideas should not be put together in right. that way. But um, I, th- I think that to, I, that this story just illustrates the idea that we, we have really not wrestled with the idea that people die from a wide range of diseases and that those trajectories, even if it's just age and frailty, I mean, and dementia, what, those, those trajectories are not known. And yet, would we deprive those individuals of what is now being articulated as a charter right? This isn't a medical decision. It's a charter right in Canada which is very different than every, everywhere else in the world. Sally, when in your career did your, your passion about this, your deep interest in, in researching MAID and looking at the effects on nursing and, and other mm-hmm. clinical settings, where did that all start for you? Well, I, um, I didn't research MAID until MAID was legal in Canada. And, of course, it happened so quickly, really. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, not if you look back at the history. There were many things along the way, but... For those of us in healthcare, there was not really a clear sense that this is something that's just down the down the corner and going to happen. You know, I think there was a sense that maybe decades from now this might happen. These are conversations, but I had been studying the experience of people with chronic conditions for many years. I was just fascinated by how they weren't really legitimized in our system. We know how to deal with a heart attack, and we know how to deal with trauma, and we know how to deal with the acute and episodic issues that we can treat, cure, and send out. Mm. But people with chronic illness are like violating the rules of the system. The job of the patient is to come, present yourself, let the expert tell you exactly what to do, follow those orders precisely, get well. And then you've fulfilled your, your contract as a patient. <laughs> Chronically ill people don't do that. They've, they've, they've got uh, things that continue. So in, in those early years, because I've been doing it for a lot of years now, but in those early years, really, there are many aspects of the way we set up hospitals and systems that we're setting up barriers for people with chronic illness. There's a, there's a favoring of those legitimate patients such as the heart attack ones and people needing surgery. Um, but, but the others were bed blockers. They were, not, they were kind of taking up the resource rather huh. than being seen as legitimate. And it's taken a, a very long time to, to adjust that. It wasn't until about, um, was it 2002, that the World Health Organization decided that chronic disease was more than half the burden of healthcare in the world. 2002. It was very recent Gosh. and it was like, boom, oh, you're kidding, really? This is a legitimate thing. <laughs> Um, we in the healthcare system have to deal with it. And so gradually people have been, um, you know, primary care systems and other systems. There's loads of good people that have always been doing good work. But I'm, I'm talking about a kind of a system, system. ideology that, that, that um, these people are entitled. And we've, we, we still have gatekeeping systems set up. If you want to go to a specialist, you have to go through a primary care person. Mm-hmm. With the idea that you don't really know what you need or want or what's legitimate... Even if that specialist last year said, if this happens, please come right back to me. You have to go back to a primary person to tell them that you can do that. So we have never got to a situation where we would have like a a chronic illness passport. If I'm somebody with a chronic condition and I've been proven to be reliable reliable about not overusing my specialist or (laughs) my prescriptions, uh, you know, could I not just bypass that? 
that costs the, all of us money. I mean, there's no, there, there, if, if it's not adding value, it's not, it's taking away from other people getting primary care. Yeah. So if you think of the numbers of people with chronic conditions that have to go to unnecessary appointments in primary care in order to access their routine specialist care, and there's millions of them, you know, it's a phenomenal load in the system. So that's the kind of issue I was trying to fix when I was doing my PhD in the, in the late 80s. And, um, you know, it, all these years later, it's not fixed. There, there's movement forward. So I, I had been studying that and then um, shifted into the cancer care system because I'd realized so much of what was happening to people with chronic illness is really problematic communication. They're kind of the messages that they're getting is that they're they're not reliable, they're not valid, their 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 situation is not worthy of the kind of attention. I mean, we we can all some somebody who's sitting at home and waiting for care and being told they can't access it, or told they wait six months, or told they're asking for too much, and they know the care that would actually allow them to live well is is constrained and not very expensive. And then we all hear about you know. The, the extent to which society will go and, uh, you know, resolve somebody who's out to sea or yes. <laughs> on the highway. I mean, yeah. we, we use all costs. Yes, we, don't, right. we don't hold back on anything for certain kinds of things. It's, it's those kinds of distortions mm. that create some difficulty. And it's, it's the ideas and the sort of turf wars. Two different specialists. I mean, bodies are complicated and they don't just get cardiac or just don't just get hepatic disease. They get a little bit of everything. And yet the specialty systems have not historically seen it as a single person. And, you know, they, anyway, the, these, these all um, were fascinating to me. And the idea of communication in that context was huge. So I, I moved into studying it in cancer care, partly for practical reasons, because the professional, Nursing Professional Association had a needed to have a representative on the BC Cancer Board, so I said sure, and got fascinated by how, how it would be easier to study things in the cancer care system because it's so clear, at least to patients, that, can, that communication matters. To be able to argue the value of paying attention to communication. Mm. So there isn't a conference in cancer care that patients and families are involved in at which communication won't be high on the priority. The good that you can do by explaining things in a careful, thoughtful way, or the harm you can do with those toxic messages, like there's nothing more we can do. Go home and get your affairs in order. Go home and get your affairs in order. Completely toxic, completely harmful, just soul destroying. That's what what keeps you awake at night Mm -hmm. and your family members awake at night for the rest of that life and beyond and and erodes trust in healthcare systems those are those are toxic things the cancer care system does care about communication but it's held i think the simplistic view that you just do communication training you do it with the you know the young residents and medical students and and if you give a good training then somehow it'll fix it there's a a gajillion studies on the impact of of communication training in cancer care that again and again prove no effect so it's not that communication training is wrong, it's just that it's so insufficient. And those, those people who are not inclined, those who do not have emotional intelligence, for example, <laughs> will take the communication training, pass the course, forget about Set it. Set it aside, yeah. 
Others who care will take it, but the effect of their ability to be able to really judge those complex situations is not going to show up perhaps for years. Mm. They want to find mentors. They want to look to colleagues. Just, you know, I, I see how this person does it. How do they, how do, they do this? They, want to, they need to have that experience and time and reflection to find their place in communication, and they need to be curious about it for the course of a career. So people, some people do become fabulous communicators, but they don't even necessarily know that about themselves. And others are dreadful communicators, and nothing in the system really knows what to do with them. Right. We don't fire uh, an oncologist for saying there's nothing more we can do. Right. I know a woman just last year who, who uh, was in dreadful pain, went to, to the emergency department, and she had been a cancer patient a few years before, but did not want to think about cancer. And she, after waiting 10 hours, she was told, well, if you're not willing to take chemotherapy, then go home. We will not provide care. We won't find you palliative care. I mean, it was, if you won't take this, there is nothing. And we will not access those things that you might need in your dying phase. Whoa. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, you know, working with a friendship network and finding good people to solve that. She did get into a wonderful palliative care facility in the end. But... but how an individual could look at someone in the condition that she was in that very visible distress, very clearly toward the end of her life, and, and basically say, if you will not accept our values as a system, the value is if whatever's causing your distress is, is cancer and chemo you know, is the thing we offer, if you'll outright say that that's not an option for you at this point, then you don't get access to care. So it's that, that kind of thing that we needed to sort out. And we don't know how to deal with it. I've, off, I've said to, to many that at a cancer facility, if we had a hole in the carpet and people were tripping, everybody in the whole facility would recognize it as a safety issue and know where to report it. Right, it would right. be dealt with in a day. But when you've got a, a skilled, expensive oncologist that's repeatedly communicating with patients in a way that's soul-destroying, it's very hard for the system to know what to do. Hmm. And so, I mean, I wouldn't want to fire them. You know, people who have oncology skills are great. Yeah. But certain people should never have an unassisted conversation about bad news. It, sh- it should be understood as uh, we need to buffer patients. We need to guide people through. I mean, you could have a clinical nurse specialist go in and say, you know, Dr. So-and-so is extremely skilled at what he does. He's not got a great bedside manner, so I'll come with you and I'll interpret if there's any confusion. You see, so you can, Perfect. If, if, you, yeah. if, you, if you understand that communication is important. <laughs> anyway, that's a long story, but because I'd been working in that field, when, when medical assistance and dying came onto the spectrum, it seemed absolute, I needed to study this because you just know that this is going to call up sort of the ultra- complex conversations and that those complex conversations can change the outcome of people's lives and a a well done medically assisted death that someone is guided and supported through the process and their people are guided and supported through the process will affect that family forever all of those loved ones will take that story a badly done one will do the same thing and you may not know what the outcomes will be, but you can bet that when people don't trust the system, can't put themselves safely in the hands of a healthcare professional, and you know that that's differential among different segments of the population. Yeah. 
Well, I'm just thinking of the person you mentioned who was able, thank goodness, to access friends who who knew people and do things. And, oh, yeah, a lot of people How are just don't? not in that situation. How many don't? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're beginning to wake up to how many inequities we've created. It's easy in the health, easy for every healthcare professional to say, well, I'm a good person. I treat everybody equally, which we hopefully are now recognizing as a problematic attitude. It's a way of ignoring that the system does not do that and that there are certain people who cannot go into a healthcare facility confident that they will be treated fairly. And as long as that exists, we all have a obligation to step up. So the equity issue is very much part of this medical assistance and dying as well. Sally, what drew you to nursing in the first place? Oh, I didn't ever intend it to be a nurse. Oh. Uh, no, I, I, um, I, I grew up in Toronto in the 60s and sex, drugs and rock and roll in high school, skipping school um, was more important. Don't trust anybody over 30, <laughs> you know, civil rights, all of, all of the protests. Um, and I, so my marks were, were dropped toward the end of high school when I was otherwise there. occupied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing I'd applied for was Carlton to go to journalism school for some reason. I can't really remember why. And I well. didn't get in because my marks were not great. And I didn't have a plan B <laughs> except for working at the Odeon Theatre, which was not going to last long. And I, what I really wanted is to get out of my parents' house. Bless them, I didn't want to be with them anymore. So uh, I started feel, realizing that I was envious of others in my high school class who'd gone into nursing school because at that time you moved into the hospital. Right. The hospital program. You were immediately out. You were yeah. immediately out. It didn't cost money, so I didn't have to be beholden to them. Um, and, you know, there was a job at the end of it, so I hadn't had zero interest in nursing, but the idea of getting out of the house. So I think that it's the, you know... <laughs> The best decision I ever made, but I made it on really, really lame decision-making strategies. Anyway, I, I got into it. Um, my mother, when I just the moment I said, "Well, maybe I should have thought of nursing," and she sort of jumped up from the breakfast table, got on the phone, and called every hospital <laughs> in the city in Toronto Western Hospital. I guess I just had a cancellation. So within about two days, I was admitted. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was. It was you know, and and started within about ten days. It was right at the end of the summer, so it just was a bit of a fluke, and uh, I became fascinated. I mean, it was just very interesting work and. And then as it happened, I just, you know, for, for other equally silly reasons, like I really, I became a nurse and I liked it, but, you know, it was kind of boring and there were so many interesting things going on in the feminist movement and political science. And I thought I'd love to be in university for a year. So I gave myself an excuse to, I moved out to Vancouver and, just, and took a year at university, just the one year, just to be in university and have that experience for once. And well, within two weeks or so of that, I was hooked and I thought I've got to stay in here. So might as well now get my degree in nursing. And so, and then, you know, then the master's and then the PhD. So at each level, it became more and more interesting, more layers of complexity, right. more tools in your toolkit to be able to, to do something. And Working in nursing is fantastic because of the wonderful people you meet. Mm. I mean, I'm not totally Pollyanna, but honestly, nurses are wonderful people. <laughs> and there, there are so many nurses who are wonderful people. Right. You know, I've had the opportunity, I, especially teaching graduate students, people who are drawn to graduate study in nursing are almost always people who love nursing, see the potential, but see that it's not being realized. They don't quite know how to move systems and advocate policies and stand up to administrations. They don't know how to use knowledge to make those convincing arguments that things ought to be done differently. And so they come to graduate school 
to strengthen those skills. They're fired up. I mean, they're, they're, they're the best of the best. They're fired up. And if you're giving them, if they're, if they're receiving what they want and they can start to see a path to take that knowledge forward, they're so much fun to work with. And you learn so much from them and right. their expertise. So it's the best job in the world to work with nursing graduate students. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're um, I can't think of the title, but Applied Science, you're what, the Associate Dean? Yeah, yeah. Nursing, nursing at UBC is in Applied Science. It's been there for 103 years because uh, historic. So it's the only time nursing and engineering are, are considered part of the same thing. But my dad was actually um, Dean of Engineering at University of Toronto. I grew oh. up in an engineering department, so I know the species. And engineers and nurses are, are both involved in the world of science, but not for pure science. They're involved with science as it solves problems. Right, right. And so there's lots of similarity. It's the doing stuff in the world and using knowledge and using science toward something, which, you know, in my mind is, you know, thinking about that, that undercore of social good. What is it that society benefits from? Uh, from both disciplines, and so it's been it's been very interesting. And then I was director of our school of nursing for a decade. And after I finished that, I was thinking, well, not sure what the next phase of my career will be, but th- there's not a lot of it's hard to fill those those director and dean of nursing roles. There's not a lot of people seeking that because right. they love what they do and they don't really want to move into administration. So having successfully completed it, I was kind of a bit of a target for everybody seeking somebody. So I did get a lot of, of uh, you know, in, in offers and encouragements to go other places. And it really caused me to think about what do I want. Hmm. And I decided that I'm not leaving nursing. I, I love my school. I love nursing. I love the core of what I get to do. I love Vancouver. This is this I, I now want to enjoy it in a different way. So the opportunity to to move into the associate dean role was great because I could put fifty percent of myself in nursing and fifty percent in that in the, in creating the conditions that support those directors of of schools and department heads, the the faculty members that are sort of guiding the processes. So it's been fantastic. Um, the the synergies that come from all kinds of disciplines that you might not have thought of. All of my work historically has, has been interdisciplinary as well. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a real proponent of maintaining that disciplinary identity. I think for some, there's that sense, well, we're, we're all the same. We'll, we'll not take our various positions. And I, and I think quite differently. So, no, I, I want to be in there with the nursing lens. I'll tell you what that looks like, and you tell me what the geographer lens looks like or what the epidemiologist lens looks like. And we have that discussion, and I think that makes a difference. Why? Well, I'm sort of an, a nursing elitist, but... All health disciplines would say they care and they look at people holistically and that kind of thing. But I really do think that nursing nursing exists to take a different perspective. So it exists to ensure that an individual is well served in a complex system swirling around them. An individual with complex needs and in a trajectory of various health things is well served. In a swirl of standardization and accountabilities and electronic recordings and all kinds of things that seek to put you in tick boxes as opposed to be the individual. Right. And, and so it's not that advocacy doesn't happen in other health disciplines. It's not that they don't care, but that that is nursing's core mission to say, how close can you get to the essence of who this human being is and what they really need in the total 
context of what's going on in their body and soul and mind and family and community and get them through this treacherous journey. So that's our job. What's, what's a change or what is a structural change or, or a, a system change that could happen, that you would love to see happen, that would make it possible, I think, for nurses to be more able to do the things that they are passionate about doing? Well, um... Small the, question. <laughs> the, most, the most obvious one to me, and it may sound sort of completely simplistic, but over the last couple of decades in particular... Um, in trying to be accountable in healthcare, we've created health system management philosophies that have been very business and accountability oriented. They tend to lean toward standardization of care pathways, and they tend to lean toward ideas like providing something that gives the highest value for the most. Not really paying attention to there's some that are on the fringes and Mm -hmm. not getting that high value. And these, these corporate philosophies have had significant impact. One of the things that they, they are pretty core to these corporate philosophies are breaking down the silos of healthcare. So the, the idea that providers, healthcare providers have self-interest, the doctors will always speak up for the doctors and the nurses will speak up for the nurses. So they tried to break down those silos of care by putting operations leaders who are not attached to any discipline or are willing to give it up, who will work with people in interdisciplinary teams. Now we all, nursing has always wanted to work in interdisciplinary teams, that's not the issue. But in creating these systems that are corporate systems, really, so you won't find a director of nursing, you won't find a a nursing team leader, you won't find a head nurse, all those species went out with the dodo bird. Oh, And this means that the beginning nurse who comes into a unit, a new graduate, may not have any place to raise a clinical question, hmm. to say, I'm troubled about this. You know, there, there, there may be somebody who comes and does an orientation. There may be somebody who's your unit manager, and they may not understand how nursing thinks. So we've, we've lost that ability in most of our healthcare systems. Some are struggling. I mean, there's some, there's some in BC that are really worked hard to maintain a system of nursing, but it means they've lost the named positions that had had the legitimacy. You might have a vice president of patient care, but it would be if that person happens to be a nurse, it would be very bad form to have a meeting with just nurses. You're supposed to right. You see what I mean? The, right. You're 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 now interdisciplinary. That's the that's the song sheet we're all singing from. So you cannot do something just for nursing, and you can't create a system for nursing. And the young ones don't have that disciplinary mentorship that they ought to have. We'd never let oncologists go and say, well, you know, you finished medical school, go off and learn from anybody. Uh, we, we, we understand that it's another decade that they need to, to develop that. And I really do believe nursing needs that as well. Hmm. This is why I think we have problems with training the new graduates now, because they run into moral distress. High patient workloads in the last three years have certainly demonstrated that. But you go home too many nights afraid that you might have missed something or misunderstood something or that something you didn't do well enough or that something you observed that you couldn't respond to. You lose sleep too many nights and you will be gone from nursing. Yeah, yeah burnout, you know. yes. Yeah, and that burnout is, is, is moral distress and it's serious. If you think of the, the cost of preparing a nurse, it's very expensive to prepare a nurse. We, we ought to be 
seriously thinking about maintaining them. So it, it, it isn't really a major shift. It doesn't sound like a major shift to put me back in somebody that looks like a head nurse or looks like a team nursing team leader, a nursing administrator, director of nursing, but it violates the fundamental code of what we've set up as legitimate healthcare huh. system philosophy and ideology. So that's where it's tricky. And, and you know, I think now we're recognizing that there's a workforce problem in healthcare and that we all need to rebuild that. Possibly we're at a point where people will start to listen to those arguments again. These are lifetime learning careers. They ought to be. And it, it's where people get burned out, morally distressed, stop learning. That, that's where you get the nastiness, the actions in healthcare that are reprehensible. And so I'm not, I'm not excusing it where people are racist and, you know, those, right. those terrible things that happen. But I do understand how it happens. You came in with an ideal and you cannot work out how to, how to deliver that. And before I wrapped up my conversation with Sally Thorne, given that we're talking about education and lifelong learning, I asked her about some of the mentors in her life. Just amazing people. Often, often people, you know, 20, 30 years older than I am that sort of, it felt like they sort of picked me and said, we're going to meet. <laughs> we're going to talk about things. And, and um, Can you think of one person right off? Yeah, Verna Huffman Splane. I don't know if that name would ring a bell, but Verna and her husband Richard Splane were were uh, just amazing Canadians, both Order of Canada. She'd been uh, one of the the first principal nursing officer in the federal government. He was a social worker in the federal government that laid out the social safety network. I don't know the technical details of it, but they're both historic characters. And they, they, uh, it was a second marriage for him. They got married later in life. And he, she, they went together to, I think, 70 countries to interview prime ministers and chief nursing officers to try and understand, if you had one, how to make it work. Huh. And they wrote a book on it. But it was a you know, self-funded kind of projects that they did. They knew everybody in the world. So every chief nursing officer, prime ministers of places, princesses and... <laughs> you know, leaders of things, World Health Organization kinds of figures, they knew everybody. They lived out in Allison Road near campus in a big house. And at four o'clock every afternoon, the Scotch would come out and there'd be nuts and things and people would turn up. Oh my gosh. Into, in, into their hundreds. They, they were both over 100 when they died. But even at, at 97, I remember her hosting uh, afternoon gathering for about 100 people with when, when the, one of the international organizations of nursing was meeting here in Canada and she had all the dignitaries there. She said, oh, well, I won't speak, I won't speak. Well, of course she did. You know, <laughs> 97 got up and just made a lovely speech. And I thought, how did I get so lucky to, to fall into the world, the net of yes. these people. Um, they're, they're people who spread a very wide net. And you'd go to their house on any individual day and you'd find a new refugee from Uganda, a single mother and a child that had turned up at their church. Or you'd find somebody who was a, uh, an ambassador from somebody. And she'd say, now you'll need to talk to you about this. She'd set up conversations. Wow. They were just dynamic. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. And she she would phone me up and say, I, I need you to come. Can you come on Thursday? So I'd turn up and then she'd say, all right, this is something that's going wrong in the healthcare. She'd describe whatever she was worried about and then look at me and say, now, what are you going to do about this? Oh, <laughs> accountable. <laughs> completely, completely. Absolutely just wonderful people. Um, I, they became like extra parents and I was able to be supportive to them right through to the end. And um 
just so many memories of, of how they engaged with the world right through to the end of life. So rich. Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. My guest, Sally Thorne, Associate Dean in the Faculty of Applied Science at the University of British Columbia. You can find out more by going to the website. There are links there where you can find more information about Sally Thorne and her books and her publications. And you can also read my blog on the website as well. Just go to CherylMcKay.com. If you'd like to be in touch at any time, simply use the email hello at CherylMcKay.com. I always love to hear from you. Especially grateful for suggestions for guests for the podcast. Sally Thorne was a great suggestion from someone I know. Thanks so much for downloading. Talk to you soon. Bye for now.